Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Today, Lily has some information on what happened to the giant insects that used to roam this planet. Then we're going to talk to my friend Tom Wegar, who uh, was recently evacuated out of Yellowknife and is looking forward to getting back home. I'm going to demonstrate Be My Eyes uh, chat GBT4 and how it works with identifying my fishing lures. This has always been a challenge for me. How do I identify the different colors of my fishing lures? Well, you'll hear how that worked out and a little reflection on what this summer has meant for nature and for all of us here in Canada and for our future. It's been a busy, hot, smoky, fiery, rainy summer. Let's get going, Lewis. Did you know? Hey, Lily. Hey. So what did you think of the bugs up at the new Bluefish Exploration Center? Uh, well, I didn't go digging around for bugs, thank God. Um, but, you know, I don't think they can, any bug right now that we'd be able to find there is as bad as the ones that were, you know, walking around at 150 million years ago when the Preozoic instincts were big giant bugs. I guess that's one way of looking at it. Well, yeah, well, hundreds of millions of years ago, giant insects were common on Earth. So consider Meganora, a genus of extinct insects from approximately 300 million years ago. Yeah, related to modern-day dragonflies. One member of this group, Mr. Permiana, was first described by researchers in Kansas in 1937 as having a wingspan of over two feet. Whoa! That's like 0.6 meters. Uh, it's still considered one of the largest known insects that's ever lived. Now that's a bug. Yeah, when people complain about cleaning dead bugs off their windshields or being in the midst of a swarm of bugs camping, well, that's the worst, uh, just be, you know, thankful that insects today are considerably <laughs> smaller than their prehistoric cousins. So why did the giant prehistoric insects disappear? Well, over a million insect species live today. So truly giant bugs don't really exist anymore. There are two main reasons. The most important is that our atmosphere has changed. So millions of years ago, the air surrounding our planet was warmer and moister and contained more oxygen. During the Carboniferous and Permian periods, Earth's air contained 31 to 35% oxygen as compared to just 21% oxygen in the air today. Why does oxygen level impact insects? Oxygen levels are especially important for insects because they don't have lungs. Instead, they rely on air flowing through a series of openings across their bodies called spiracles, which connect via tiny tubes to the tissue that need oxygen. So no capillaries. I'd like a few of those. It'd be handy. But what's the other reason giant insects disappeared? The other reason giant insects disappeared relates to birds coming out on the scene. Huh. So as ancient dinosaurs evolved the ability to fly, eventually becoming modern birds, they put a cap on insect size through predation and competition. The earliest known bird, Archaeopteryx, appeared about 150 million years ago. So birds proved to be faster and more agile than the giant bugs. So it's not that the birds necessarily ate the giant bugs. They ate their lunches. Yeah. So can you imagine if birds hadn't come along and we had to deal with these big freaking things? Man, Theo would have to get a whole new concept of a bug zapping paddle, that's for sure. Thanks, Lily. Outdoor Adventures. Tom, how long have you been out of your home uh, in Yellowknife because of the fires? Well, we, we actually uh, traveled down a little bit before the evacuation, mostly because we had planned to visit down on Vancouver Island with family. 
but uh, as we've traveled back up north, uh, you know, the evacuation order out of Yellowknife had been in effect. And um, we've only been able to get to about Grand, the Grand Prairie region before we were kind of stopped from heading further north because you just can't get back. So um, we, we've been in Alberta, you know, just kind of camping or, or staying in Edmonton for about the last two weeks. Wow. I mean, I understand they've got a, they, they, they have a standoff with the fire. It's about 15 kilometers from Yellowknife. But Tom, talk to us about what does Yellowknife look like? I've been up there a few times, but, you know, you've gone eyes. Tell us what it looks like in terms of uh, someone who lives there. Yellowknife is a small city of 22,000. You know, it, what I have always been impressed with it is, is, you know, when you're downtown, it looks like a large city. It's got... Um, a good dozen uh, large, tall buildings that are, you know, 15 to 20 stories high and um, uh, a downtown vibrant business core and and a number of lakes around it as well. And, of course, the lakes are all well-treated and, and have lots of great foliage around it. They're, they're beautiful for walking your dogs and just going for walks within the, within the city perimeter. And, um, you know, the boreal forest really busts right up alongside Yellowknife. And, and that's the concern now with the fire, as, as you mentioned. You know, it's 15 kilometers out, which isn't that far. And, and I have to add that this, the city and the NWT have done a, a pretty amazing job, I, I believe, in putting in place kind of a, about a 100-meter kind of fire perimeter where they've, they've either cut down and or bulldozed uh, trees and brush so that the fire hopefully can be stopped at that perimeter. And then they, they, they put in place this massive uh, industrial sprinkler system with metal piping, and the pipes are about 12 inches in diameter, you know, so massive flows of water. And, uh, you know, they've kind of started sprinkling that perimeter just to keep it wet and uh, less, less likely to burn. Now, that, that doesn't guarantee the fire is not going to jump that perimeter. It, it could with uh, heavy flame and lots of debris flying through the hot air and, and gusting winds, it could. But, uh, you know, at least the perimeter will, will kind of help stop it. The perimeter is right, al- right al- alongside the city. It's within, say, two to three kilometers of, of the city. How long is the perimeter? It arcs around the city towards the fire. So mm. my suspicion is it's probably a good eight to 12 kilometers. It's like a reverse green belt, right? I mean, most cities have a green belt yeah. around them. You guys have the opposite. You you are surrounded by green and you had to create this brown belt. Uh, barren land that hopefully doesn't catch fire, or if it does, you know, can be extinguished pretty quickly by a ground crew to kind of to kind of fend it off, you know. But um, but hopefully it doesn't get to that. Right right now we're hearing that the fire has kind of stabilized. Mm-hmm. Which is good news. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably um, at least where you know it's not moving a whole lot, and so it's probably at this point, and it's probably burning out its fuel. You know, and, and that starts to um, starts to diminish the fire a little bit, but but that can change really quickly if the gusts come up. You know, and and there's um, and that that fire starts to move again, that'll change immediately. You know, so we're all kind of keeping our fingers crossed right now. When I was talking to you two weeks ago, you and Sheila, your wife, you were just on your trying to get back up there because Sheila has to. She's a teacher and she has to start school, I guess, last week or this week, right. and uh, and you were being turned around. And, um, and we, and I asked you about your dogs, you have two dogs uh, and you told me an amazing story about the dogs, a yellow knife. 
there's lots of dogs in Yellowknife. You know, Yellowknife is a very dog-friendly town. Lots of young people up there and families, and they all have big dogs. And sometimes they've adopted uh, one of the northern breeds that that come from the NWT. You know, they're they're a little bit of a mixed bag of breed, but they're beautiful, uh, friendly, docile dogs very often. Yeah. And so lots of people are out walking their dogs, you know, in, in off-leash areas and... Uh, and, and just they, they love their dogs like they're part of the family. And certainly the two big dogs that we have, we have an Australian Shepherd, and then I, I have a Saluki that returned with me from my work in Qatar when I was over there. So two, two fairly large dogs, and, and everybody who's vacated um, had, had either had to, you know, kind of carry them with them in, the, in their vehicle or in a dog kennel, um, but they also did um, um, an evacuation of dogs uh, earlier on too. Now I, I don't know the full details of these, but um, you know I, I think maybe the military or somebody like that uh, had, had settled up a number of the dogs and they maybe brought them down to an SBCA um, down in Edmonton, or they're being adopted or looked after by families down in Edmonton. They were they were um, airlifted. The they were airlifted. They were airlifted out of Yellowknife before the people. You were saying. Yes. yes. Yeah, about a week or five days before the people, um, again, because they knew the dogs just needed to be taken care of. And again, this speaks well, I think, to the planning of the uh, the city and the uh, the government of the NWT to kind of start thinking about moving um, loved ones and, and, and people out of the out of the city. And, and doing so, it before it got to a crush where people were, you know, yeah. were starting to line up for their own evacuation flights because, you know, we hear yeah. in the news about the people lining up for evacuation flights, and, but we never hear about the dogs. So the fact that they, yeah, they managed right. to get the dogs out of there beforehand, that was pretty amazing. And, you know, you think about those dogs. I mean, they're, they're part of your family. You yeah. know? And uh, if, if you're boarding an evacuation flight and not, not all flights, have the aircraft are not all big enough to support the, ken- the size of the kennels that they're transporting, and they have to be in a, in a warmed area of the holding um, of the uh, the cargo as well. And so, you know, if evacuees are boarding a plane, and then they're told, "No, sorry, you're tr- you're we don't have room for your dog." Well, you're not going to want to go on the plane. You know, you're going to kind of step aside and say, "Okay, well, I'm I'm going with my dog." You know, I'm I'm going to wait for my dog, kind of thing. My my loved one. Mm. And, uh, and and so I think that kind of planning to say okay let let's start thinking about how we get those animals down and look looked after is, was really significant and really important. Wow, what does this mean when communications and transportation and, and things start to break down like this? How do I ensure you have insulin? That's a great question, Lawrence, because it does really affect me. You know, and not, not only have I been a diabetic for forty years and relying on insulin, but you know, in the last twenty years, I've been on an insulin pump, which. Uh, it greatly enhances my diabetes management, but it means that I, I've got a very specialized piece of equipment that's attached to my belt that includes um, uh, some medical supplies that I, I must have, and they're very specific medical supplies that come from the company that are uh, both in it, what, what's called an infusion set and an insulin reservoir, where the a little a little capsule that I put the insulin within. You know, it's. Uh, mm-hmm. It's three millimeters kind of kind of thing, and um, and and so I need to have these with me whenever I travel. And fortunately, um, when I when I traveled down south, I had a good shipment of supplies with me. I just brought a fair bit, uh, and I haven't had to reorder my insulin supplies yet. 
but I have had to reorder my insulin. You know, I didn't anticipate being away uh, this long. And so, uh, you know, I had to stop into the, um, the local Safeway here in Grand Prairie and, and order some two vials of extra insulin that I figured I, I'd need, you know. And normally you need a prescription for that, you know. And I, I ambled up to the prescription counter and explained, you know, I'm an evacuee from Yellowknife and I need some insulin. Can I just buy it over the counter? And, and they were very forthcoming for me, you know. They, 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 they said to me, well, you know, insulin's a Schedule two item, which means it's, you know, it's kind of partially controlled. Um, and, um, you know, norm, normally they'd like to see a, um, a, um, uh, a pharmaceutical prescription for it, especially if I'd like to get my money back for it. And, mm-hmm. and of course, I would. Um, but, but they were able to put together um, a prescription kind of receipt for me uh, very quickly and, and get the two vials very quickly without questions asked, you know. So that that was just a, uh, very much a blessing. But again, I'm getting low on that insulin that I've purchased and we'll have to purchase some more unless um, unless we're heading back to the communities again in the, in the near future. And you're paying so, for you know, that? All, all, all those supplies, um, yeah, they're they're really critical to my my lifestyle, my management, and, and my health. And um, you know, if if it continues to get lower and lower, I'll have to start to contact the company. And 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 I mean, the the supplies are fairly expensive for a three month supply. I'm looking at something in the order of about two grand or so. Uh, sorry, a little over a little over a thousand dollars for uh, those items. And. Um, uh, you know, the, the company would have to ship it directly to where I'm located in Edmonton. And, and they're good at doing that if I need them to. But um, but it's, it, it's just another thing to be thinking about, you know, during during an evacuation. And, of course, because you don't have the paperwork, you're paying out of pocket, I guess, for this right now. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So good old, good old Visa card comes in handy. I wonder what yeah. people do if they don't yeah. have that, you know. Absolutely. Well, and, and that's that. I mean, that's the other important piece that we should talk about. You know, that uh, there's a lot of people who are coming down from Yellowknife who don't have a lot of money and and don't have the ability to pay for a long stay in hotels and meals and you know all the costs that go along with um, with um, uh, being an evacuee. Now, the the again, the the government has set up an evacuation center in Edmonton uh, through the Red Cross, and we've been there just to register. And they give you, um, you know, they give you a yellow wristband, and uh, there are meals that are able to be provided there: uh, morning, lunch, and dinner for evacuees. Uh, but you do have to kind of go to the outside of town. It's, it's actually the old um, Edmonton Coliseum. Hmm. building uh where they're located you know so it's a little bit out of town but you have to go there to get your meals and to get your uh uh, supplies as as you might need them but there's a lot of people who just don't have the means to support themselves you know and uh and they're relying either on relatives or um or perhaps government assistance and it's it's really tough on them it really is tough on them i mean if you're living on a disability pension or you're you know paycheck to paycheck minimum wage and now you can't yeah, work. This yeah. is a huge stress. And and you think of the service sector, Lawrence. You know, you think of um, and the service sector is a pretty predominant uh, sector of Yellowknife. You know, um, uh, those individuals who are running businesses as a restaurant or Tim Hortons or you know very, this or that. Um, you know, they 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 can't they don't have an income, nor do their employees who work at those uh, businesses. You know, so. Yeah. 
And the same goes for grocery stores and, and people that are selling items at Canadian Tire or what have you. You know, None of those folks have a job right now, you know, so they're, they're anxious to get home. They're anxious to return to the rhythm of their lives and back to the community, you know, and, and they're getting close to the edge edge of their ability to sustain themselves in a, in a, in a distant community just don't have the means. Tom, you, you've lived, like I said earlier, you've lived, you know, much of your last 30 or 40 years in the North, um, Northern BC mostly and NWT as well. And you've seen the climate changing over these years. You've seen the impacts on, on nature. What, what concerns you, you see? The top worry, Lawrence, and this all relates to your interest as a, as a fisherman, I think my top worry up in the north is the the disappearance of the of the permafrost, you know. And mm. I've I've been to a Laurentian University research camp where the um, the research facilitator invited me to join him out for a trip. And you know, we flew out in a twin otter to get out there and um, toured toured us around. And 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 I saw the thawing. I you know they 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 use gauges into the the ground. To, to show you the difference of thaw between a, a regular permafrost and some of the cut lines and, and some of those areas where it's thawing. And you see the pools of water, you know, and, and those pools of water become little mini lakes and they, they, um, they drown the boreal forest around it. Those forests, those trees start to teeter. They're referred to as drunken forests because mm. they're all teetering all over the place. And, uh, you know, those, those forests die. They, we lose our carbon sink. And this large amount of water that's thawing, you know, you know it. You don't see it when you're looking at it, but you know it's slowly moving uh, into the tributaries of the Mackenzie River and into the, into the Mackenzie. And so, you know, all of this fresh water that's bound up in the land within the permafrost is migrating into the majestic Mackenzie, the largest river in Canada, and moving up to the north and moving to the sea. And, you know, this, this is what's facilitating, of course, um, uh, ocean, uh, the ocean levels rising. But, you know, we're, we're quickly losing our, our permafrost as well. And, um, that, I mean, that really concerns me in the north and the, the, the drying up of those areas of forest that... Um, May, may be resulting in the hotter temperatures and the, the drying of the forests that are resulting in these forests, these massive wildfires in the north as well. Yeah, well, we've heard so, about the peat yeah. fires, right? We've heard about the peat moss fires and yeah. in, 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 in yeah. how they travel underground through all this, what was you know, permanently frozen peat moss for the most part. Now right. it's all thawed out and the, the fire can travel deep, deep down under yeah. the peat moss and travel you know, it's almost impossible to yeah, put out. They refer to them as zombie fires, where the fires actually smolder throughout the winter. They're covered by snow, but they're smoldering in the in the um, in the peat moss. And and then in the summertime, when the the, the 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 snow thaws and it drifts off the land or flows off the land, um, those fires come to the surface again. And if there's a bit of a gust of wind or there's enough of a wind they'll quickly flame back up again. And again, if it's dry, you know, you've got another wildfire happening early in the season uh, as, as the snow clears. That's a result of the previous fire that was in the region. You, you mentioned you had a, a relative who got brought back up to Yellowknife uh, early. Talk to me about what his role is and why, he's, why he was brought yeah, back up. My nephew, um, who works up in the NWT, he's an Indigenous man. He's, he's married to my niece, um, He's a conservation officer, and 
been a conservation officer now for about three, four years. And um, he and his wife were actually down on Vancouver Island with their family as well, visiting the kids' uh, uh, grandparents. And uh, while, while the wife and the kids are still down on the island, he, he was called back up to Yellowknife as a first responder, as a, as a first person, uh, as a conservation officer, main, mainly to be in the community to kind of manage and help manage the bear population that will be coming into the community. And, and we've seen videos of this. You know, we've seen videos of bears kind of walking in the streets and being in people's back, backyards. And we, we anticipate getting back to our, our um, property and likely seeing bears scat around it as well. But uh, he's there because, you know, as people vacate the community and leave on mass, you know, again, you've got a city of 22,000 where everybody's left and, and their garbage may be sitting on the seat on the streets or, or even alongside their homes. And, you know, it's 30 degrees with these unprecedented temperatures and the smell, the, gar- the garbage is rotting and the smells are ripe and the bears are coming into the communities and into the garbage. And so um, my, my nephew is there to kind of help manage that bear population and help move the bears or, or tranquilize the bears as required and, uh, you know, just make sure it's safe. Because, there, I mean, there still is um, um, a skeleton population of um, people that are living in Yellowknife to kind of manage things, you know, mm-hmm. to, um, to fight the fires, of course, to be ambulance attendants, um, uh, and, and various things like that, and, and conservation officers, you know. So there's, mm-hmm. there, there's probably, I, I would estimate, about a 1,000 people up there that are still kind of planning, managing, you know, they, they're the heroes of the day that are up there to kind of put their lives at risk, but they're managing and trying to protect the, the, the city. These bears have been dislocated from their forest habitat, and then they smell yeah. this yummy, rotten food smell coming from Yellowknife. <laughs> So, I mean, right. it's not just the local bears. It's it's bears from all over coming your yeah. way. And then yeah. and then you've got bears that are now saying, wow, I like Yellowknife. I think I'm going to stick around. It'll, it'll probably mean the conservation officers' uh, responsibilities and duties around bear control will be uh, heightened. Tom, hey, thanks for yeah. speaking with me, man. I appreciate it. And call, call me when you get home. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left. meters. been picked to be a beta tester on the Be My Eyes GPT-4 beta test group. This is something I've been looking forward to because for me, figuring out the colors of my fishing lure has always involved getting someone with sight to describe it to me. I've tried all sorts of color identification tools sold for the blind and they just don't work. So let's see if the chat GPT-4 can actually describe in detail the color of a fishing lure. So I'm gonna start by laying the fishing lure on my kitchen countertop and taking a picture of it. And then the uh, Be My Eyes app will analyze the picture and provide a description of what it sees. Then I'm gonna text the uh, chat GPT-4 and ask for more detail about the color of the lure and see if it gets a, a more comprehensive response. Be my eyes. Take picture. 
In the picture, comma, there is a fishing lure placed on a surface with a square pattern. Period. The fishing lure is elongated and has a yellow body with a white belly. Period. It has three hooks attached to it, comma, two near the middle and one at the end. Period. The surface it is on appears to be a table or floor with a checkered pattern. Period. The pattern is made up of small squares and the color is a mix of beige and brown. Period. There is also a small part of something brown in the top right corner, comma, but it apostrophe s not clear what it is. Period. Ask more. Button. Text field. Is editing. Insertion point at start. Inserted. Describe the colors of the fishing lure more precisely. Send message. Button. Send. Please wait, comma, be my AI is. Please wait, comma, be my AI is writing a message. Be my AI colon. The fishing lure has a gradient of colors. Period. The top part is a darker shade, comma, almost like a metallic brown or copper. Period. It transitions into a bright yellow in the middle, comma, and the belly is white. Period. There are also red details near the head of the lure, comma, possibly to mimic the gills of a fish. Period. The hooks attached to the lure are silver in color. Period. That's a pretty amazing description of the colors of this fishing lure for sure. And it's something that I can then add to the lure. I use a piece of thick plastic, plastic that comes in wrappers uh, when you buy something like batteries. I cut them up into little rectangles and I braille them with my hand brailler. And then I use a safety pin, poke a little hole in the corner of the plastic tag with the information, the color information, and then attach the safety pin to the nose of the lure and put it in my tackle box. And then when I go to use the lure, I take it off the safety pin just store that color tag in the box, use the lure, and when the lure is dry, I put the safety pin back on and put it back in the box. It's a good system, but this really gives me the independence to label my own lures and sort my own lures out later after I use them. So I make sure I put the right color tag back on the right lure. This is absolutely amazing. You know, our charity Bluefish Canada just recently acquired seven acres of pristine beautiful pine forest spread out along 1350 feet or about 400 meters of shoreline on a gorgeous lake about two and a half hours north of Ottawa. There's a 1700 square foot cabin and the trees the pine trees grow right up to it you know they're just everything's close the trees are everywhere and I'm thinking what do we do about these forests you know what do we do if something catches fire what do we do if the if the pine beetle comes, you know, marching across from the west and infects these trees and all the trees have to come down? You know, there's things we can worry about and there's things that are definitely happening out there. You know, we hear about these forest fires in the west and in Quebec and even in Halifax and on northwestern Ontario. You know, the fires have been going on all summer. And I'm just hoping that our little off-grid is going to stick around because we plan on bringing a whole lot of young people up there, young people of all different abilities, and giving them the opportunity to connect with nature in sustainable ways. And more than that, to work alongside researchers to learn about what it takes to be a conservation officer, to learn what it takes to become conservation-minded, to become a steward, to practice citizen science, to support research, and to be a voice for nature. Nature more than ever needs our voice. So if you're interested, let me know. Send us an email. You can reach me at info at blindfishingboat.com. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. 
Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandi Frank. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.